Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in our Bibles on this Easter evening. We're turning to this chapter in part because it is uh, the one chapter in our Bibles that from start to finish is occupied with the theme of the resurrection. Verse 12 and the second half of that verse, if you're here now, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, notice the, the second half of the verse because it sets the stage for an extended emphasis he asked the question, how say some among you that there is no resurrection of the dead? Some in this church in Corinth had allowed the philosophy of dualism to infiltrate their thinking. One assertion of dualism is that because the body um, is physical and material that it is evil and that only the spirit of man and living a spiritual existence is good uh, some had mixed their christianity with dualism and they believed that they had entered a stage of spirituality that kind of rendered the body as irrelevant uh, at best and unwanted um, at worst almost kind of repulsive it was a repulsive part of their existence so they had with that in mind begun to suggest that any talk of a bodily resurrection was somehow beneath true religion but what they had not properly contemplated is that it couldn't be one way for Christians and a different way for Christ. If a bodily resurrection is beneath the Christian, then it's the same thing for Christ. And so verse 13, you can see it there, but if there be no resurrection of the dead, then is Christ not risen? So that if we are, we're not going to expect any resurrection for uh, the body of believers, then, then Christ isn't risen either. And the possibility that Christ did not rise from the dead in a physical body just opens up a whole can of worms, so to speak, that is of utmost significance. Verses 1 and uh, 1 through 4, the beginning of this chapter, Paul had already reminded them that the resurrection of Christ is a foundation stone in the only gospel that saves. On the other side of where we started uh, this evening, beginning in verse 14, he says, let me just assume for a minute that the flesh and blood body of Jesus did not really rise from the grave. You can see, if Christ be not risen, and by the time he finishes that assumption and working through it in, in verse number 19, and I'm not going all the way through it this evening, but he has showed that everything they've thought about their past, everything they have thought about their current existence and about their future, everything is all wrong if Christ be not risen. For seven verses, it's as if he's saying, I don't think this is really where you want to end up landing but this is the inevitable end of Christ isn't risen. 
Thankfully, then, he changes the tactic in verse 20, and he says, as you can see there, but now is Christ risen from the dead? And beginning in the second half of verse 20 down through verse 28, he makes use of five main arguments to demonstrate that the resurrection of Christ makes the resurrection of believers necessary and inevitable. We were even um, here this morning briefly when we looked at he's become the first fruits by virtue of the certainty that Christ did rise from the dead. So believers also certainly will rise from the dead. He's the first fruits. So um, even though I've just kind of skipped uh, and skimmed over, I've done so in part to just uh, let us know that to this point, Paul's approach has been fairly um, logically developed, um, fairly reasoned. You can, even, you can outline to this point pretty clearly. Point number one is the bodily resurrection is a foundation stone to the gospel. Point number two, if Christ is not raised, then there's no foundation for the believer's past, present, and future. Point number three, since Christ is raised from the dead, the resurrection of believers is both necessary and inevitable. And I'm emphasizing again that logic and development because what is going to come in the next several verses is not the same approach. One commentator has labeled verses 29 through 34 as ad hominem arguments for the resurrection. Ad hominem is, is a Latin phrase that literally means to the man. And, and it's a form of arguing that is more personal and more subjective, and it's even somewhat intense, intensely personal. It, it's more of an appeal to the emotions than to a reasoned argument. It's, it's more an appeal to experience than to reason. It might even be kind of attacking someone's character instead of answering their arguments. It's, it's like somebody says, I'm not going to listen to you because you are just up whatever you want to fill in. Or, or maybe they say, I'm not taking your word for it. You are blinded by... And again, you can fill in the blank. Right? So, so that's the idea of ad hominem. And, and Paul is going to be more personal at this point. And the first ad hominem argument is from Paul's own life. And it's found in verses 29 through 32. We're going to begin reading in verse 29. I'm going to pause for clarification along the way and then uh, try to make the point at the end. Verse 29 he says, else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead if the dead rise not at all? Why are they then baptized for the dead? Now, after reading that verse, you can see why we're going to need to pause for clarification. What is this talk about being baptized for the dead? Who is actually you know, getting baptized, and who are the dead that they are baptized for, <laughs> and, and what would be the benefit? What is the point to being baptized for some 
that are described here as dead. Now, one step to answering this question is to kind of rule out uh, something very important for us to just get off the table, so to speak. And, and that is to rule out the possibility that anyone can do any religious act of any kind as a substitute for someone else. Um, to, to think that, in, that, that anyone can do anything for somebody else to contribute to um, and merit that person's standing with God. That needs to be off the table, right? And the reason for that is because in Paul's greatest um, theological treatise on the gospel, which is the epistle to the Romans, he goes to great lengths to establish the fact that if a man will be declared and regarded righteous, if he will be justified in terms of his account with God, it will be by grace, through faith, and no other way. Romans 4 and verse 3, he says, For what saith the scripture, Abraham believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. And then he follows up by making this point in verse 5, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. It is faith alone. In fact, a faith that denies that works can contribute anything. When it comes to the matter of physical water baptism in the Scripture, the pattern is, is in every place receiving the message of the gospel by faith and then giving public testimony to that faith by the act of baptism. To assert that, that Paul is here in 1 Corinthians teaching that someone could actually, through water baptism, aid the salvation of one who's already physically died is to contradict not only his own teaching, but to contradict the entirety of the message of the Scripture. So if that concept of, of baptism by proxy, so to speak, is ruled out, and you begin to <clears throat> look to the Scripture for other potential answers, one of the observations you have to take account of uh, and, and factor in is that sometimes the word baptism can be used literally to talk about physical water baptism and sometimes the word baptism is actually used figuratively in the bible in fact if you just go back right here in first corinthians to chapter 10 you can see a place where paul's already used the term baptism figuratively in this very book go back to chapter 10 and just um, go to verse 1 if you will we'll read verses 1 and 2 moreover brethren i would that ye uh, I would not that ye should be ignorant how that all our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea. Now, I think Bible readers can, can piece this together. We start asking what events are, are, are these verses referring to. 
then, then we can start by just, again, being reminded that Paul was a Jew. And so when he talks about all our fathers, he's talking about um, the Jews and the cloud that they were under in the days of Moses was that light of what's often been referred to as the Shekinah glory of God that is leading them out of Egyptian bondage um, through the wilderness and the sea that he makes reference to here. They were all under the cloud. They passed through the sea at the end of verse number one. That sea was none other than, than the Red Sea that the Lord parted and allowed them to go through. Now, how then were the Jewish fathers baptized in this way unto Moses? And again, when we uh, just are are able to read from the history in, in that time, we come to recognize that the people had just been really a massive slave population in Egypt with no definite leader, no organization but as they were led of the lord by the cloud to deliverance through the red sea they end up uniting as a new people under the new human leadership that god had given them which was moses they became identified uniquely with moses their human deliverer And Paul uses that, uh, he uses baptism as a figure of this identification now with Moses. Turn over to Mark chapter 10. I want us to see another um, case where the expression baptism is used uh, figuratively. And in this case, it's going to be used by the Lord himself. Now, that being said... Jesus had already been baptized in water in the Jordan River at the outset of his public ministry. So, again, there's an example of of physical, literal water baptism. But on several occasions, Jesus spoke of a figurative baptism which was yet to come. Beginning in verse 35 here in Mark chapter 10, James and John as you can see, um, they, they speak of their desire to have uh, the most prominent uh, position in terms of um, when Jesus sets up his earthly kingdom. They come to him in verse 35 and said, we have a, we have a question, we want you to do something for us. Verse 36, Jesus said, what is it? And verse 37, they said, grant unto us that we may sit one on the right hand and the other on the left hand in thy glory. I'm sure they hoped that Jesus was going to set up his kingdom soon. They would be, you know, chief in his cabinet. But verse 38, notice, Jesus said unto them, Ye know not what you ask. Can ye drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? Right now, we know from the Lord's agony in the garden that this cup, notice, can you drink of the cup that I drink of? This cup is none other than a reference to his suffering. 
And in conjunction with this reference to his suffering, all Bible students that I'm aware of have understood the baptism then. Can you drink of this cup I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? All Bible students have referred to this baptism as the Lord's violent death. He is trying to alert James and John to the fact that that his sitting on a throne and his reigning would not come until after he had first suffered and died a violent death. They wanted the reigning. But were they truly ready to experience the suffering and death? That's what he's asking them. Now, they don't seem really quick uh, to, uh, to even attempt to understand what his reference point is. Because verse 39, after they hear that, they just say, yeah, we can do it. They said unto him, we can. Now, perhaps what they're, what they're thinking is, they're thinking that the establishment of his kingdom was going to come through a difficult revolution, and war and they're letting him know that they're prepared to serve in that cause though their reference point was undoubtedly off whatever it is they're thinking notice how jesus follows up with them jesus said unto them ye shall indeed drink of the cup that i drink of and with the baptism that i am baptized withal shall ye be baptized jesus could see into the future and he knew that these very men would indeed suffer persecution and one of these two brothers would actually die a violent death as a martyr and you don't need to turn now but Acts 12, verses 1 and 2, records that about that time, Herod the king stretched forth his hands to vex certain of the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. First century accounts indicate that, that John also faced martyrdom when he was boiled in a huge basin of boiling oil during a persecution in Rome. Somehow he was spared uh, from death, but when he was, he was delivered uh, and, and sentenced to, to the mines on the prison island of Patmos. He wrote the book of Revelation, he tells us, from Patmos, and he describes there, uh, being there in exile for the cause of Christ. That's what he would experience. Now, here in Mark 10, Jesus speaks of the suffering and violent attacks on their lives as, as well as his, as, as drinking a bitter cup and, and being immersed in something that in this case you would not choose for yourself under normal circumstances. So, so there is another figurative use of the word baptism and I've spent more time on this one because I think there's a very interesting connection to where we are in 1 Corinthians 15. Go back there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
and these concepts of, of suffering and enduring violent attacks against life itself fit with um, several phrases to follow in these next couple of verses. Uh, we're at verse number 39. I'm sorry, verse number 29. Else what shall they do which are baptized for the dead? If the dead rise not at all, why are they then baptized for the dead? And now look at verse 30. And why stand we, and notice this, in jeopardy every hour? So Paul and his companions felt themselves to be at risk every moment. Look at verse 31. I protest by your rejoicing, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. Notice this expression. I die daily. And in this context, more than likely, Paul is again declaring that, that he faces circumstances every day that put his life in danger. Verse 32, notice, If after the manner of men I have fought with beasts at Ephesus, and I don't know anyone that suggests they really know what that is referring to, but that is some kind of reference to opposition that involves severe danger. And again, when I put these references to life-threatening danger, when I put those uh, together in the context with the baptism for the dead in verse 29, I'm led to regard that baptism as putting life in danger for the cause of Christ. Some have suggested that the baptism is into the realm of the dead, which would make it really a poetic synonym for martyrdom. I'm putting my life in danger to the point of martyrdom. Others have suggested that, that the dead is a reference to those who are dead in sin apart from Christ. And, and they see this then as referring to those that are risking their physical lives for the sake of reaching others who are still spiritually dead. I don't know exactly what to say about the the reference for baptism for the dead, one of those two, some combination. But, but if we're anywhere close to understanding what Paul meant by the expression, he's wanting the Corinthians to think about the motivations that gospel ministers have for actually risking their lives in doing service for the Lord. Chronologically speaking, the beheading of James, as is recorded in Acts 12, had already taken place before the writing of this letter that we are reading. The stoning of Stephen, a deacon in the church in Jerusalem, whose death is recorded five chapters earlier in Acts, that had also taken place. And I don't have all the dates, but according to traditional accounts, the apostles and early church leaders 
were being martyred one after another throughout this first century. Thomas was ministering in India when he was slain with a dart. Simon, the son of Alphaeus, was crucified in Egypt. Simon Zolotis preached in Africa and even Britain, and he was also crucified. Mark, who was the author of Peter's memoirs, ministered in Egypt, and and there he was drawn with ropes into a fire and burned. Bartholomew is said to have preached in India and Armenia, and after various persecutions, he was beaten with staves, then crucified, and after beheaded. Andrew, the brother of Peter, ministered in Ethiopia before being crucified. Matthew ministered in Ethiopia and Egypt before the king of Egypt sent someone to run him through with a spear. Philip, you know another deacon, was stoned and crucified in the city of Phrygia. James, the brother of the Lord who wrote the epistle of James, assumed a prominent role in the church in Jerusalem, likely serving as his pastor. But there, scribes and Pharisees threw him off of the pinnacle of the temple, and when the fall did not take his life, they stoned him to death. Peter was crucified under Nero, and believing that he was unworthy to die like his Lord, he asked that he be crucified upside down. Some of those deaths may well have followed the writing of this epistle to the Corinthians, but, but certainly several of them had already transpired and the reports were available. And if you look again at verse 29 in the second phrase, Paul says, if, if the dead are not raised... If believers who have died in Christ are not to expect resurrection, if there really is no concept of a bodily resurrection to be expected at all, then then why have these men? And why have others like them risked their lives in the service of the gospel? What point is that? And and furthermore, if you now into verse 30, Paul says, look, just consider my own case. Why would I stand in constant jeopardy? In verse 31, the daily threats against my life. And in verse 32, the recent opposition that he had experienced in Ephesus. Why would I go through that if there's no resurrection? And now notice the the middle expression in verse number 32. If after the manner of men I fought with beasts at Ephesus, notice this. What advantageth it me? If the dead rise not. There would be no point in risking your life in the service for Christ to take the gospel to others if there's no resurrection. There just simply is nothing to be gained at all. No advantage. And these people had to have known something of what Paul endured just to minister the gospel to them in their own city of Corinth. On the missionary journey that brought Paul to Corinth, he was first beaten and jailed in Philippi. Then he was attacked by a mob in Thessalonica that eventually tracked him down and attacked him again in Berea. 
Then the Jews that he first ministered to in Corinth opposed him, and, and he said that he was there in weakness and in fear and in much trembling, and it took the Lord's special assurance to him that there were many people to be reached in that city to strengthen him to stay there and minister. I don't know what they knew of the early days of his Christian life, but we know from reading Acts that shortly after he professed faith in Christ, he had to uh, be let down in a basket over the wall of the city to preserve his life. His first missionary journey brought multiple persecutions and attempts on his life. And as you know, in one case he was stoned and, and they thought he was dead. He was left for dead. After his Corinthian ministry and the writing of this letter, there would there were going to be more persecution and suffering. And ultimately, according to traditional accounts, Paul himself would be beheaded at the hands of Nero in Roman AD 68. Now, what profit is there to any of that? And I would suggest again that this ad hominem argument, this, this highly personal, subjective, passionate argument is, is to say, look, I and other servants of Christ like me, we'd be total fools for risking our lives if there, if there was no resurrection. On Good Friday morning, I recounted for us some of the deaths of the leading English reformers under the reign of Bloody Mary. They were burned at the stake for rejecting Catholicism's doctrine that, a ma- uh, that, that in the Mass a priest offers the literal body and, and uh, literal shed blood of Christ again and again. J.C. Ryle reported on the death of John Rogers and said that he walked calmly to the stake, quoting the scripture. I mentioned the French ambassador who was in London and observed the scene, and he wrote back um, home that Rogers went to his death as if he was walking to his wedding. Was a man like that and others like him, were they fools? And it is true that that some people do die calmly and some die for causes as martyrs, but but they are foolish deaths. Some men die claiming to be a master of their own fate and captain of their own soul, and, and yet they die as fools. Some men die thinking that serving as a so-called suicide or or more truly a homicide bomber that murders others in the name of their religion as their last act of life will secure them in heaven and a warped view of heaven even at that. Well, those men do die as fools. But did the apostles die as fools? Did Paul live and die as a fool? Did the English reformer John Rogers, did he die as a fool? What about Jim Elliott and his companions? January of 1956, died on the banks of the Kurai River at the hands of the Aka Indians, the very tribespeople they had gone to, to, to preach the gospel to. Were they fools? Jim Elliott didn't think so. You know he had previously written in his journal, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. 
But dear friends, if the gospel message is not true, if Jesus Christ did not die for our sins in a flesh and blood body that was put in the grave and came up out of the grave on the third day, if, if that resurrection does not inevitably and necessarily secure the resurrection of all who have died as believers in Christ, then Paul, those before him, those after him, who have risked their lives for the gospel, they're all fools. They should have adopted a totally different approach to life. It's the, it's the approach Paul speaks of at the end of verse 32. They should have just said, look at verse 32, the end of it. They should have just said, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. They just live for the here and now and enjoy it because that's all we have. If there's no resurrection from the dead. Now here's a great challenge for us today. Are we living the life of those who believe in the resurrection? Or are we living the life of those who don't? If you don't believe in the resurrection, then it's consistent for you to just eat and drink and enjoy the immediate pleasures and the comforts of this life. Just enjoy yourself. Stay completely safe and sound. Don't ever risk anything for the gospel and for ministry and for Christ. Don't ever deprive yourself. Don't ever deny yourself or any of that. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then eat and drink and enjoy all that you get. But if you believe in the resurrection and the gospel that the resurrection is the foundation stone of, then it is inconsistent to live for eating and drinking and the immediate pleasures and comforts of life. It is far more consistent to live for the advancement of the gospel even if it means it will expose you to suffering and affliction and possibly even laying down your life. That's consistent living with belief in the resurrection. If you're taking your time to listen to an Easter message, not on um, Easter morning, when many people in our culture will attend a church like this that they wouldn't normally attend. But, but you're, not, you're not doing that on Easter morning. You're doing it on Easter evening. All right, my guess is that you profess to believe in the bodily resurrection of believers. But I want to ask you, are you living like it? What difference has it made in your life? It made a profound difference in the lives of those apostles. I mean, Peter and others were very self-protecting when the Lord told the apostles that he was going to Jerusalem and he was going to suffer and he was going to die and he was going to be raised again. Peter chimed in and said, Not so, Lord, be it not unto you. 
And the Lord actually said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, you savor not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. And, and, and what he was saying is, Peter, you're, you're, you're talking in terms of self-protecting, self-comfort, self-convenience. You're talking about ruling and reigning. You're talking about advantage and so on. The men were fearful. The men were self-protecting. They were ambitious for the here and now. But post-resurrection, they were everything but that. They were about the gospel. And they were about preaching it to people dead in their trespasses and sins. And about getting it to as many of those people as they could, even when it cost, and ultimately, when it cost them their lives. Brethren, what difference has our belief in the resurrection made in our lives? Would you bow your heads and would you close your eyes? Our Heavenly Father, I don't think that for us today that are so familiar with these truths, that that a response, at least for most of us, is going to likely be like just flipping a switch. But Lord, I do ask you that you would help us to continue to be mindful of the reality of the resurrection and of its ramifications for time and for eternity, of its ramifications for our past, our present, and our future. And I trust you, and I pray that, that you would help us to be not only mindful of the resurrection, but that your spirit would aid in our contemplations and would minister truth and, and point us to the significance of the fullness of what we've explored all weekend, of, of all aspects of the gospel, of the righteous life, but of the death and of the burial and the resurrection of your Son and our Savior. And Lord, we pray that your Spirit would, would take these truths and would transform us more and more into those that really do invest into eternity and the advancement of the gospel, even at cost. And Lord, do it all, we pray, for your glory and praise. In Jesus' name, amen.